0: Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth The knowledge. By word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu/slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're talking with college sports expert Dr. David Ridpath about some of the failures of America's system of athletics, which is built on a school and university model. Dr. Ridpath is an associate professor and the Kahandas Nandola Professor of Sports Administration at Ohio University. He also is a faculty fellow at the Center for College Affordability and Productivity and a regular contributor to Forbes Magazine Online. College athletics in the United States, broken.
1: It's pretty hard to say it's not. I mean, as successful as it is, I think when you look at it from a governance model, uh, what I tell people, Tom, is you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. I mean, these are institutions of higher learning that essentially have been hijacked by a very lucrative, in many cases, lucrative uh, commercial enterprise that I think, sadly, many presidents and trustees start to think that it that is the reason why their university exists or is a primary driver of the success of their university. And I think the evidence points against that. Now, I do want to say up front, I I love college sports, Tom. I'm a season ticket holder here. I go to everything I can, uh, admire what the kids do. Uh, But I I don't think it's a level playing field in the sense that this is supposed to be the time when they are getting their college education. And it is a great gift that they're able to use their athletic ability to gain that. But we're doing it backwards uh, in, in the sense of you know, the time commitments that we're asking the athletes to put in, the travel commitments. Um, just even for me as a professor, uh, I often tell baseball players and golfers and others uh, in the spring semester that they should really think about maybe not taking my class because of how much they're going to miss. Um, nothing against them. They could they sure. could handle it. But I think that those are the things that we can look at. And I think that there are some kind of easy fixes. The real problem, Tom, is that America is the only country that does this. About 90% of all of our sports development is grounded in education, um, in an educational delivery model, where in other countries it's the exact opposite, where the education system is more of a sports sampling, more of a way to get introduced to sports, where the actual competitive and mass participation and even elite development are outside of the educational system. I do think that we could do some of that within the educational system, but there has to be a point in time of where you know, if you have a baseball team or a football team or a basketball team going to the Final Four, a lot of people don't realize teams that go to the Final Four typically are missing school for three weeks. That's pretty impossible to get through. And so are we even delivering on that educational promise? So I think the system as we're doing it now is broken because, Tom, we're trying to do two different things, and we have to decide which way we want to go. As long as we keep uh,
0: the business of amateur sports in, in an educational setting. It seems to me, and, and perhaps I'm wrong, that, that we can go back even to elementary schools and, and certainly through middle schools and on into high schools as being feeder systems for, for this business. I, I don't know how many parents you know, think that Johnny or Sally are going to be uh, scholarship athletes and and that they're using this as a mechanism to 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 get to college uh, it seems like it's so steeped in our educational system that yes you have elite teams beyond that and you have aau teams and other types of teams but it's so incorporated in our educational system that it goes back even to elementary school am i right no you're absolutely right i
1: think when you talk about tom that a whole cottage industry has developed you you have uh companies out there that are saying Bring us your fourth or fifth grader and we'll get them ready to get that college scholarship when even if they were good enough to get a college scholarship, which often you find that you're not um, or you're not getting the level that you think you're not going to be that basketball player at Duke because only a few can do that or a football player at Alabama. But these parents are spending thousands upon thousands of dollars on uh, Trying to get their kid to that level and thinking here's a way I can save money on college when honestly they had the, they spent the money already on how they could get their their kid to college or there's other ways through academic scholarships and things to be able to to get to higher education so we we really have our priorities twisted in a sense and what's happened Tom when you look at even some of the lower socioeconomic areas is that we're communicating that. It's trickling down saying, this is your only way out. And so even you know the educational systems there are suffering, but yet we're putting a lot of money into the athletic area because we're saying, this is your way to succeed, and we're not putting the money where we should put it. And, and the child
0: uh, misses so much of, of childhood by concentrating on a sport or two. Yes, the They have the elements of competition and teamwork and all the things, the positive things that go with athletics. But it seems like uh, they're doing that instead of
1: hanging out. (laughs) Well, it's a big problem that we have uh, here in America, Tom. And and as I mentioned to you before we went on, as I've spent significant time in Europe looking at how... They govern sports and do sports there, and there's there's a, they actually really restrict a lot of things as, as far as sports participation and sports practice. Home. Well, using my son Bradley, who's a, a junior here at Athens, I pretty good soccer player, but I don't want him to be immersed to the extent of that's all he's doing, and he gets burnt out. We have a problem in America with sports specialization. You even talk to uh, people like Urban Meyer up at Ohio State, and he will tell you the best athletes that he gets are the ones who play multiple sports. So. We work. We do sports specialization at an early age when we should be having kids. They should be doing every sport that they can. You've got a body type to be a soccer player. Exactly. You,
0: you're going to be. You're going to be a football player. Right. You, and you, you get. You get yeah.
1: pegged early yeah. when you really should be playing a lot of different sports. Or the kids who are pitching at a young age. You know. 100 games a year, and they're killing their arms. I, I've seen a lot of great athletes, even here at Ohio University, kids who I know could play at a very high level, who said, I just got tired of it. I got tired of being pushed by my parents and others. They're kind of looked at as almost a meal ticket in many ways. And, and that's where it's really sad, where in Europe, my son, for instance, again, he played for a club over there under-16 team, and it was mandated. You practice three times a week, and you play once. That was it practice was an hour and a half and they got everything done that they needed to do and again this is a country where soccer is very big yeah, soccer is <laughs> and, yes but also there's no sports specialization in essence p- pigeonholing you into one sport until the age of 16 so you take somebody who plays for Bayern München now uh philip lom for instance and i i do have a book coming out talking about this and i use philip as an example he was identified as a potential elite player at the age of 16 then he went to a soccer academy and then he was tracked into an elite development program because he had those skills that really at that point in time he's a probable elite athlete someone like my son who's a good player a solid player would be on a different track so when he if he would still be over there at over the age of 16, then they would practice four times a week, but it's very restricted. And they also had study tables and other things within the sports club. Not affiliated with the school in any way, um, but they also encouraged other sports within that sports club and and playing different things to get those different types of uh, of skill development. Even though soccer was his main sport and that was the main sport of the club, part of their off-season training would be playing another sport, and that's something we don't you don't see much in America. And the other thing is the cl- sports club system in Europe is is very inclusive because obviously they have a national sports policy. It is government funded. I know that talking taxes and things, especially in this. This day and age is not a good thing to talk about, but I feel in America that the government does have to have skin in the game here, because when you look at talking about something as complicated as health care, uh, Tom, right. and Obamacare and other things, well, what we do in America is we focus on reactive health care, where in Europe, they focus on preventative health care. I look at my mother-in-law, I look at my brother-in-law, my wife's side of the family in Germany, and they're participating in their local sports club. My brother-in-law, who's almost 60, is playing soccer on what they call an Alte Herrenmannschaft, an old man's team. So there's that activity from literally from a very young age in a recreational format You don't have to pay very much, if at all, because it is subsidized, and the sports club itself makes money off their main team. So, for instance, a Bayern Munich, you know, uh, will obviously make money through their main team, but they'll have government subsidies to help take care of uh, the rest of the community that can participate in other other sports, swimming, whatever, baseball. Even believe it or not, is over there, and you see. And I did a pretty extensive study on this. The uh, mortality rates and you look Germans don't eat well when you talk about a diet and those types of things but the mortality rates uh, heart disease all those things can be directly attributable to a more active society and the access to the local sports club half of our problem is is really the cost and being able to get kids to have to have access even in schools what what you and I had Tom we had PE class absolutely I talked to my kids they barely even know what that is and so we don't even fund things in the school that we should be doing to really give that sound mind and body instead of focusing on, well, we don't have money for PE class, but boy, we have money for this high school football team for 40 kids rather than taking care of the 400. And that's really where we have it backwards.
0: You certainly are, are known internationally and and certainly nationally as, as a critic of college athletics is in the way it's operated now. And uh, you did a sabbatical. You went to Germany. You, you're you're looking at uh, doing your second book. Are you sort of changing your focus a little bit and say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to concentrate on what's wrong anymore. I'm going to look at what we could do differently, what we could do right. Is this a change of focus for you? No,
1: I, I think it's fair. I think obviously there's a lot a lot to criticize, but I think you also have to present some solutions. And, you know, I'm firmly convinced, Tom, and and nobody, I defy anybody to tell me different, that it doesn't matter who plays when Ohio State plays Michigan. In other words, if you're the best athlete at Michigan, Tom, and I'm the best athlete at Ohio State, we know we're not, but let's just say, (laughs) let's just say that we were. 100,000 people are going to show up. We don't need to have this huge mechanism, $5 million coaches and all these other things, to be able to have the pageantry Of college sports. I mean, we can still do the things that we're doing. I was reading this morning about Clemson's new locker room is going to have a putt putt course and (laughs) massage chairs. I mean, you, you don't need to have that. I mean, Woody Hayes didn't have that. Bo Beckler didn't have that. I mean, there's uh, you know th- there's things that we can do. Uh, we're being so ostentatious in so many ways. We're dropping sports like we did at Ohio University and then putting more money into things like that. That we really've got it backwards. Of what college sports could be, we could still have everything that college sports can be without doing the things that we're doing. And then I also think, from my perspective, is I needed to look a little bit broader. I needed to look at like you talked about the trickle down effect to the middle schools, the high schools, the elementary schools, and then also look at just uh, the health and wellness aspects of America. I mean, I'm, I'm in Germany and I, I hate to put it this way, Tom, but I'm walking through Germany and what I don't see is a lot of overweight people, but I know what they're eating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what I see is an active populace. And honestly, I know that this would get me <laughs> no friends, but if I was king for a day, I'd I'd raise gas to 10 bucks a gallon because it would force people. You remember, Tom, when it was, what, 2007? People actually got out and yeah. walked. Even me, I live in the Plains, I got on my bike and here I'm talking all this stuff, but yet I'm driving when gas is cheap. But when it was over $4 a gallon, I got on the bike path and I rode my bike. And that's what actually brought gas prices down is, uh, you know, we need to get out as a populace and move more. Uh, I was able to meet with the first lady, Michelle Obama, last uh, last April at a conference in D.C. And what she's talking about is is absolutely right, is, you know, we need to come up with a way and fund to get more people active. And I think one of those is the local sports club option. And we need to look at Moving beyond the educational system for not just elite development, but also even competitive and mass participation and still have what we, we need to get back to PE in the schools. We can still have teams in the schools, but make sure that those those really competitive and elite things can be done outside.
0: So break this down, though, for somebody who may not be a sports advocate uh, or sports uh, enthusiast, a, a club approach as opposed
1: to a school approach. Uh, what's the difference? Well, I think we could potentially have both in America, but a local sports club is independent of of the school system. It is government supported uh, for the most. So there is actually, they have a sports ministry in most European countries, our national sports policy. Um, in fact, we're the only Olympic committee in the world that's privately funded. I see. It's amazing. So, but this is something that I think, and when you talk about actually putting money into this, and this is something Michelle Obama, uh, I'm in lockstep agreement with her, is this is something that if we actually spend money on it now, we will save trillions later, uh, primarily in healthcare costs and 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 other things because of what we're spending on healthcare because we're so reactive, but we're not doing anything hardly with preventative care, and a lot of that is just simply being active. But it produces a better citizen, citizenry, better, better work performance, uh, you know, lifetime expectancy. So many things could come from this. That you know, doing something so small, setting up a national sports policy, setting up independent sports clubs that are at least partially government subsidized, and then being able to develop. And another thing, I guess, I want to say, Tom, is is having local sports clubs is the problem because we're focusing so much on football and basketball at the school level we're losing a lot of other sports even here at Ohio University we don't have a men's swimming team anymore or we don't have you know lacrosse and that's happening at the junior high level the the high school level so what's going to happen and i was up at the university of michigan a few weeks ago for one of their football games and they introduced all the olympians that came from the university of michigan and i thought you know, in 20 years, they might not have access to these sports because the only place they have access to is in the school or they have to have money to go through our very exclusive private club system. We need to have a more inclusive club system that everybody has a chance. Now, uh,
0: your concept of of the club system, would it be all-inclusive as to athletic ability as well? I mean, it seems like we discard the kid who Mm – May be the slow developer, or or not have all those athletic skills. By the time they're in the fourth grade,
1: they're done, right? <laughs> and, it, it, and it has to be for everyone. And it used to be, yeah, physical physical fitness class, physical education, right? Um, but you know we're at a point in school-based sports where we're cutting kids and we shouldn't be doing that. We used to have, a, I told my son about junior varsity teams. He doesn't even know what I'm talking about. We need to also have those things and, and uh, intramural teams and stuff that you don't see at schools that we had when we were growing up. But those things can be made available at the club at all different levels. Yeah. You're going to have those kids that are elite and they can be put in a different track. You're going to have those kids that are pretty strong and competitive and they certainly can be put in a different track. The club system in Europe is open to everybody, whether you're handicapped whether you're a slow developer, a non-athletic person like me who happened to just be able to wrestle okay, or somebody who's, who's athletic like my son or even the elite athlete. But my worry is, is that we're not going to have a place for anyone in the educational system besides the elite athlete. And I think we're already there, Tom.
0: Yeah. So, so if we have a club system that's government financed, what does this do for college athletics? Do those club systems become the feeder system, and, and do they have the potential to be tainted? <laughs> uh, but because in, in in Germany and, and other countries, you, you don't have the uh, uh, college
1: and university athletic teams like mm-hmm. you do right. uh, in this country, certainly. Well, I, I think there's different ways to look at it. In my, up in my book, Tom, I talk about four different models that we can go to. So it's not really one way. The club is involved in all Types of models, but I think, you know, we, we have to look at it what, first off, um College, as I mentioned before, college athletics can exist if we actually really ran it as a strict school-based system, and basically, you play with the kids that you have in the student body, kind of like you used to do in high school, but we sure. don't even do that anymore. <laughs> um, you know, and if somebody if somebody wants to, wants to come there come there to play football, they can, but they have to meet the academic requirements, all those things. Um, we can still have that, and people can still watch that, and I, I still think it will be a very viable product. But we have to say for the kid who. And I had Randy Moss when I was at Marshall, and, and nothing against Randy. I, now he seems like a much different person than he did when i I had him at Marshall. But he did not want to be there for school, but yet we had to put in a one hundred thousand dollars mechanism just to make sure he stayed eligible. So I think you know you can look at different ways, and I talk in the book about college athletics as, well, here's one way we could do it. We could have the club system out there. Let's give kids a choice. Right now, the kids don't have a choice. You either go to, especially in some sports, you either go to go to go to college. That's the, the pathway to, to professional sports. Oh, or you don't have the money or maybe at the point in time in life, the ability to go to an IMG academy or something like that. So they're really kind of pigeonholed. So part of me is saying, let's have the option. You can go play in the club system or you can go to college. But if you come to college, this is the system you're going to be in. And it's not going to be. But courses in the locker room and that type of thing. It's going to be academically based. academically based. You know, we're not going to play games in the middle of the week. You know, you're not you're not going to travel far. You're not going to have a Conference USA where, you know, Marshall's playing Texas El Paso. All those things, I think, can be fairly easily fixed. But maybe, Tom, let's look at it a different way. Let's give kids a choice, but let's still have college athletics, but let's do it this way. Let's use Ohio State as an example. Let's not have... These, ac- these academic standards that quite frankly, even normal students don't have to live by when you talk about percentage of degree and minimal hours right. and things. What would be wrong if a JT Barrett came to Ohio State and said, I'm just gonna play at Ohio State and I'm going to go to school later. And Ohio State says you have a lifetime scholarship. If education is the end game, we want something for them to fall back on, that should be fine. Or you can take as many credits as you want to, it's up to you. You can take, you can take the semester off when you're playing. You can graduate at your own pace because then the education would be more effective. Then they could go pro, take some time off. And there's a model for that already, Tom, Major League Baseball. But we don't say anything about that. We let Major League kids leave school. Uh, all the time, right? They can go pro right after high school. The rule is then they can't get drafted until after three years. But we've even had kids here at Ohio University. Uh, I've had students in my classes who left after their junior year and got drafted. And then the major league teams actually pay for their degree completion. And many of those kids have come back to Ohio U to graduate. So there's so many ways we can do it. I think we really have to put our foot down and tell the NBA and NFL that we are no longer going to be your free farm system you're going to have to put some more money into player development. And and the money is there. And they could be part of helping to fund a club system, a minor league system, to give the kids a choice. Um, but I do think we can look at the, the academic setup and just say, if the education is so important, let it be at the athlete's own pace. Because when you show up in Columbus to watch Ohio State play Michigan, at the end of the day, do you even care if they're in class or not? Let's at least care that they're going to get an education eventually instead of a manufactured education over four years that – You know, I always tell people this, until you see kids in their senior year who can't read, who can't function, function. and that's what I saw when I worked in college athletics, it really opens your eyes. Um, If we're not going to remediate those kids and get them ready to handle the rigors, then let's let them go at their own pace. And then maybe somebody like Randy Moss today, when I see him on TV, I bet you he could go back to school and do quite well if he wanted to. No, it's his choice. He doesn't have to but at least it would be available to them. So I think there's different ways we can do it. We'll be back after this message. This program is
0: brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So far, though, if you look at college athletics, especially in, in your major uh, income sports, your football, at and, and major universities, and, and college basketball, uh, they're businesses. I mean, pure and simple. They're, they're, they're businesses. They're, they're kept many places separate from the academic track. They're, they've got separate budgets, obviously, but they're businesses. Yet we have the this concept of a student athlete being the worker bee <laughs> of that business. Those seem to be in juxtaposition of, yeah, of each other. Exactly, Tom. I think
1: that that's the big issue is we're trying to do two different things and we have to make a decision. I always tell people the current model does not work because of exactly what you said. We're running a big professional organization on an academic campus with a facade of saying that, hey, these it sounds great on paper. You talk to people in Europe and say, wow, you go to college, you play your sport, and they're going to pay these exorbitant prices. Of course, they don't have to pay tuition over there, which is a whole other conversation. Right. But they know that college in America is expensive, and you hear that. But then you say, well— then you find out, well, their eligibility, they have to be eligible to be able to compete and to generate that money. And then that's where the conflict really starts. I think we have to decide either way. Honestly, if Ohio State was uh, a separate athlete, professional athletic association that was attached to the university and uh, paid for their marks and those types of things and paid rent on the stadium and the kids who played for the Ohio State football club, if you will, they would have the opportunity to go to school if they wanted to on their own. I, Again, I don't think people would care. I think we evolve. And I think we've tried to hang on to this old model that, Franklin, you know this, Tom, has really never worked.
0: I think no, it's, it hasn't. it's
1: noble in concept. But I, in my intercollegiate athletics class, I have my students, without them knowing, hopefully they're not listening to this, but they'll figure it out, but I have them read a report from 1929 on the state of intercollegiate athletics. Tom, it could be written today. It is so amazing what they're talking about, recruiting issues and pay for play and, and you know, academic uh, integrity issues. This was 1929. So these problems aren't new. I think we need to look at this, either be honest about it and, ha- and professionalize it, or there is a way there are ways, I should say, not just one way, many ways that we can make the the model work in an academic setting, but it'll be a complete paradigm shift. So
0: address this point, though, because uh, so many times, and without the benefit of data, I hear college administrators and college presidents across the country say, our athletic program, yes, we put a lot of money into it, and yes, we have academic problems, etc., but it's, it's the cohesion for our alumni. It brings in thousands and thousands and millions of dollars to, to, to the university. First of all, is, is that true? And, and, and secondly, if that's the case, how do we get beyond that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Tom, that it's, it's not – there's some anecdotal evidence that that is true. But, but honestly, I go back to my earlier point. All these things that they talk about, all the cohesion, all that could happen if we ran an academic model. All those things would still happen. You'd have that cohesion. You know, you could still have games on TV and all those things. That wouldn't change. Um, Why do you have to do all these whistles and gongs to accomplish something that you could have accomplished? And frankly, we're accomplishing before by doing less, so that's really the first point. The second point is that often it is very overinflated about the uh, the marketing ability, and and again, this is nothing against uh, you know any athletic department, but to say that it's a major enrollment driver, it is the. The uh, re, uh, you know, some even say the main reason for the university to exist, bringing all these alumni dollars. You find that even in the case, and you'll remember this, uh, the famous Doug Flutie pass. Yes. Uh, there's an old, uh, an old uh, saying, what's called the Flutie effect, because Doug Flutie completed that pass against the University of Miami, and it is true, and it is documented. And one of my uh, uh, friends is a faculty member there, that Boston College did see a surge in applications. Now, but then you had to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit. And say, okay, Boston College, very selective school. It is. Did that, were they applications that you wanted? Well, not really. That's the one thing. And then the other thing, if you look at it, it's almost always a short term gain. You know, sure, when Ohio University was on the cover of USA Today with KVK and we won the first round tournament. I was as happy as anyone. You get that recognition, but it's very, very short-lived. And the interesting part, Tom, is, and I've done some research on this with, with Rich Vetter and, and Matt Denhardt over the years, even, in, even interviewing Ohio University students, it's a nice value added, but for the most part, and this is something that we're going to delve in more research-wise over at the Sports Administration Department as opposed to when you and I were growing up. When you talk to millennials, I mean, Tom, they can watch 100 games on their phone. It is not the same as when you and I were in school when it was Keith Jackson one game a week and that was it and it was controlled that there was a little more pull to go to the stadium because, one, it was a fun thing to do. I enjoy going to games myself. But see, now these kids have a choice, if they're sports fans, of 100 games. But the other thing is with the internet and all the other things that are out there, they have so many other things that they can do. The interest in old state you and what they're doing athletic-wise, even at your bigger schools, Florida State, Ohio State, North Carolina, you're seeing a dip in student attendance because they've got other things going on. As much as I hate to put it there, now us old alums, yeah, it's, it's great. But because of technology and things that are available, I would argue, and I think quite successfully, that that pool that presidents and trustees try to say, and we're going to make this investment, and you know we're going to drop this sport and make an investment in football because it's going to do all these great things, um, I don't think the data supports that. And I think there are some studies out there, even the NCAA's own studies. Uh, Cornell economist Robert Frank, certainly Rich Vetter, has done n- numerous work on this, that that Attachment or the, those intangible things happening is short term at best and many times not realized A, at the very least the money you're spending you're not going to see appreciable ROI over that
0: Let's talk about the influence of media on on college sports and how that might be different with your club uh, <laughs> concept. Media seems to dictate now times of games, days of games. Uh, Big money trickles down even to smaller conferences. Has media taken over the administration of college sports? And if so, and we're talking about millennials and others getting 100 games on their Mm phone, is can we ever change that? Can we turn that back, or what's the alternative to that?
1: Yeah, it would be it would be very difficult. And, and you're right, Tom. You bring up a, a great point because you 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 t- you talk about the Mac games on 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 Wednesday Tuesdays and Wednesdays, which I was adamantly against. Uh, now some people say, well, we get this great TV exposure. Oh I mean, yeah, but there's two thousand people in the stands, and you're not getting you know uh, at the very least. Uh, you know, Tom, you and I have been here a long time, even in our dog days. We put ten or 15,000 in the sure. stadium. Sure. You know, people would come out and watch. And, I mean, now that we're having these games on, on, on the, on the weekday, sure, somebody in Hoboken uh, can watch us. But is that truly what we want for the campus? Well, it's being dictated by, by TV in a sense. Now, when I met with ESPN, uh, ESPN's Burke Magnus, he said that's not the case. He said the universities are coming to us. He goes. We're not. We're not going to them. And I think that there's. It's the truth somewhere in the middle because they do need content, and that's why you're seeing a lot of these bowl games with five and five and six teams, five and seven teams playing each other, but yet people are watching. I mean, I think um, there were what 27 bowl games or something that, this season. Even for our bowl game, a Bruce Feldman of uh, of Fox Sports said that you know the the Troy State Ohio game. There's 25 million people watch. That's still a good chunk. I mean, even in a big country like ours, that's a good chunk of of people. So, I mean, I get that, but then I go back to that we will still watch whether the players are paid and we professionalize it or whether we go to a real academic model. I think that we can do that. But, yeah, we have to look at things realistically and say, you know, should we be playing a game which I fell asleep and wanted to go to, but should we be playing at 9 o'clock at night on a college campus? I mean, should we really be doing that? On a, you know, even though it was a Friday night, I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw the crowd, Tom. It was so small. Very small. I watched a little bit on TV and I'm just, and I know the students were gone, but if we would have played that at seven, we would have probably doubled that crowd or played it on Saturday at seven when it was originally scheduled. Those are the things I think we have to think about. And then the networks will adapt to us, but really from a college athletics perspective, Tom, where people can put their foot down. I always tell people this that institutional rules trump conference rules, conference rules trump NCAA rules. But there is a group on a campus, and I'm calling us out because it's the strongest group on campus but does not exercise the power, and it's the faculty. We truly can control these things if we want to. We can control admission. uh, We can control all these things. Even at Mississippi State, where I used to work, the faculty came out and said, we will not play any Thursday football games. Well, then guess what happened? The athletic department said, well, how about if we give the faculty for professional development, all these other things, $200,000? <laughs> and guess what happened? They started, started playing. playing Thursday games. So then the faculty even, even, even capitulated. But with the power of academic freedom and tenure, we really could. The faculty could make a stand and enforce some of these things. But really, right now, we've abdicated our responsibilities of guardians of the curriculum. And it is being run more like a business.
0: You study this all the time, David. But do are we in danger as a society of reaching saturation point? Uh, I, I know I don't follow teams the way I used to because uh, I'm just overloaded. Uh, you know, I follow you know the teams that I care about, but the, the peripheral teams I don't follow them anymore because I don't have room for them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I there's just too much almost. For me, is that is, can
1: that be an issue? I think so. I mean, it's going to be interesting because I think that uh, that point may be a little further away. But I mean, I think you know, you look now on TV, you've got drone racing, rocket racing, you know, world str- you everything is. There's so many things, so many games that I think you know, even me, who is passionate about sports and it's what I do, what I study. It even for me, sometimes I'm just like, ugh, you know, it feels like it's a little too much. And I think. Throughout history, whenever you oversaturate something, eventually you're going to reach that point of where it's just, it's just too much. I think a, a couple things are obviously ticket prices. Or you're going to start driving and pricing people out, and you're going to see people mainly watching on TV to, at empty stadiums. And then I think you're going to see now that it's going to be like, well, now, gee whiz, people are cord cutting. So you're going to start seeing more pay-per-view. I think there's going to be a lot of things that are happening over the next 10 years that may affect how we do sports in America, and oversaturation is one of them.
0: You uh, wrote a piece recently for Forbes um, uh, talking about players not playing in bowl games and, and protecting their investment, in, in essence. Circling back, we were talking about the, the university athletics becoming a business model, yet, as I mentioned, the worker bees don't get paid. Uh this almost seemed like almost a, a, a labor rebellion in, in in a way with some athletes saying, "Look, I'm not gonna play in this. This lower tier bowl game. Uh, my, <laughs> my talent's better than that, and
1: I got to protect my investment. Are we going to see more and more of that? You know, I tend to think so, Tom. Because especially with the elite athletes, I, I mean, at at the end of the day, athletes today are getting smarter. It, it's kind of interesting because you look at like the the dictator, dictatorial coaches that existed before right. the Woody. I mean. Players would not even dream. I mean, I worked for Harry Huska here, and I would. Players, wouldn't, athletes wouldn't even dream of saying anything. But see, now athletes are smarter. They have access to more information. And one of the odd things is these athletes that play against each other now know each other very well because they go to these elite camps together and they they stay and <laughs> they've
0: been playing since
1: they were young kids it, which you know we never talked you yeah. know to the rival athlete that That's was right. that was sacrilegious and so now they talk to each other and they they're questioning things and then they're seeing things like the northwestern uh you know labor rebellion that happened with the unionization and and realizing wait a second hang on they see that the, whether it was for the right reasons or wrong reasons the minnesota player strike the Missouri strike, which I felt was for the right reasons, uh, absolutely. And that got a president fired and a chancellor fired in 24 hours. Right. I've always told athletes this, the power you have is immense. If you ever organized, it doesn't matter what ESPN says. It doesn't matter what Nick Saban says, Urban Meyer, <laughs> anybody. Yeah. You actually have the power. And I think athletes are starting to realize that. Even singularly are realizing the power. And I think they're like, hey, look, I've given them everything. I played. I paid my debt in full. They were paying for my school while I was playing. I have millions of dollars at stake. And and when you look at the uh, the the draft charts, Tom, if somebody drops from first or second pick to say seventeenth or eighteenth, that's millions of dollars. Oh, millions! And that's if I'm a, and if I'm a parent, I'm telling my son don't play. Even if I'm a coach, I'm going to say that. And you saw in the Michigan bowl game where you had Jake Butt get injured. uh, You know, he's going to be a prominent uh, draft pick, probably first round draft pick. He may drop now because of that knee injury. I say it should be the player's choice. Now, on the flip side, if they're employees and you're paying them and you have a contract, then you can require them to play. But don't ask somebody who you're now you're trying to preach as well. It's all about the team and you should be loyal. But yet how many coaches leave before bowl game? You know, how many assistant coaches leave before a bowl game? Where's their loyalty? And they're getting paid millions of dollars. They're not honoring their contracts. And so to me, it's pretty hypocritical. If I was Christian McCaffrey, if I was his parents, I'd certainly advise him to do that. And a lot of elite athletes can get insurance policies, but they're not going to get insurance policies to the level that they could get paid. That's, that's and right. And why play in the Sun Bowl? Now, again, if it's a national championship, it might be a different conversation. But even for that, if they don't want to play, it's up to the players. They should protect themselves. I think any of us, if somebody would tell you, hey, you have a chance of getting hurt and you may lose $10 million or a length of a contract, we'd all do the same thing. It's easy to be out here and say, oh, you know, it's all about team and all those things. But I think with the way we're not paying the athletes, the way we treat the athletes, the way we what we expect of them, they're putting 40 to 50 hours a week. And we're telling them they have to go to school and many times manufacturing degrees for them. Uh, I think it's high time the athletes stepped up and they are doing it now. Now, that would make a Woody Hayes turn in his grave, but um, it's a different time. And I think we need to evolve. And I think we're going to see more and more of the athletes standing up and saying, you know, we're not going to do this anymore or, you know, we're not going to tolerate it. There's a story many years ago, uh, Sonny Vaccaro, who you're familiar Mm -hmm. with, a good friend of mine. He tells me that it would have happened, if you remember back in 1990 when UNLV was undefeated, but they lost right. to Duke in the semifinals of right. the Final Four. Um, he said that if UNLV would have won because of all the troubles Jerry Tarkanian was having with the NCAA, that UNLV, they had all pledged that they would wait 15 minutes to take the floor. Now, could you imagine? <laughs> Everybody is stuck then. Yeah. There's nothing that CBS can do. No. There's nothing that their coach can do and they they said just 15 minutes and they're going to make sure CBS reads what why they're doing it and then they're going to come out who has the power and the athlete athletes do and they're just starting to realize it. it's like any labor movement right
0: yeah. you know that's you, that's what I, my point it's it's sounds like very early stages mm-hmm. Of, of uh, organized labor mu- movement.
1: Well, you even have a players' association now—the National Collegiate Players Association—which is run by a former UCLA linebacker, Ramogi Huma, who's a wonderful person. And and while it's not a players' association per se. It is building some momentum. He was the one that led the Northwestern unionization um, effort, and it's getting more and more power. It's supported by the United Steelworkers. <laughs> they put a lot of money into it, and, and because of him and efforts of people like Sonny Vaccaro, the athlete is really standing up, and I think it's great.
0: One last thing that we haven't talked about, and, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't, and that's the role of the NCAA and uh, the organization or lack thereof?
1: I think, you know, there has to be some type of governance. But I think what we have to look at is maybe different governance, governing organizations. And, And people have talked about this. This is not anything that I'm coming up with. But should the same governing organization over football be the same one over basketball or over track and field? It's really different. Sports And for somebody like me that worked within that system, it can be almost maddening at some time, the different requirements of different sports. And so I think that that's one thing that it can that can be looked at. And then you have to look at is the NCAA in any way, should it have any academic authority? And, and it's struggled with that over the years where because really, right? I mean, academic decisions should be. The purview of the university. And one thing I've supported is even though I understand the purpose of a national initial eligibility clearinghouse, and I think that there's been some good things that have happened with that, with the NCAA's effort, I think the university should be allowed to admit whoever they want. But however, if they admit that person and that person is academically underprepared... The university should remediate that person to get them ready academically before they play. And there's only really two things that we can do is one is we should have a freshman and eligibility standard, not the old standard when you and I were younger, but the standard of if you are more than one standard deviation from the incoming profile of the institution. And we know that Northwestern and Public Ivies and others are admitting kids who are well below that standard. Well below. How can we expect them to succeed? without again, bucking the system, out and out academic fraud. That's what happened at North Carolina. If you're going to bring them in and they're below that profile, they're ineligible to compete Limited practice until they're remediated up academically. That's one way. And then the other thing that I've pushed for years, along with uh, the Drake Group, um, which I would invite your listeners to go to our website, which is just drakegroup.org, uh, to see some of our proposals, is we need to have an active plan of disclosure. And you can do this within the Buckley Amendment. It's been proven because of the uh, you hear oftentimes about student student rights, but you can show in the aggregate without identifying the athlete what majors they're in, who are the faculty teaching, um, and what are the grades that they're getting. And by that, you can see this phenomenon called clustering. That's what happened at North Carolina basketball. All these basketball players were put in with a friendly chair and a friendly faculty member, and they were maintain, their eligibility was maintained through fraudulent classes. Well, North Carolina is not the only one doing that. But when it gets exposed, what happens? They change. They fix it. A process of disclosure, and it's been long advocated by the Drake Group, is not about athlete behavior. It's about institutional behavior. And having that transparency, schools will actually comply because once these things are exposed, they fix it. But if they can keep it under the radar, they'll do that. So having that that uh, aspect of transparency could truly change things. And that's really where the NCAA could stand academically, but I don't think they should get into the percentage of degree and other things like this because they're very inconsistent in their application of the rules. What the NCAA does well, Tom, they are a great sports governance organization. They don't get enough credit. You look at the championships the NCAA puts on. I honestly think the NCAA should run the college football playoff. They should be back in charge of Division I football because there's not many better organizations. If you go to the NCAA wrestling tournament, track and field championships or the Division II Jamboree, they do a fantastic job. And I think if they stay in their lane, that's where they could be a fantastic sports governance organization. But the universities have to take control of what they're supposed to be doing. And again, with minimal oversight, like I said, freshman ineligibility in some cases, and uh, disclosure and transparency that could all be taken care of and the NCAA could get out of that stuff there's some things in recruiting they could monitor because even pro leagues monitor you know sure. salary caps and things like that but I don't think they need to monitor and be all these things where they're getting down to what say my son's high school course I mean that should be the university's decision should not be the NCAA's decision David thank you thanks so much Tom I could talk about this all day so <laughs> I
0: appreciate you having me on it Today, we've talked with college sports expert and author Dr. David Ridpath about some of the failures of the system of athletics existing in the United States. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR one. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at Hodson at Ohio dot edu. That's Hodson, H O D S O N, at Ohio dot edu.